Our coverage now continues with the glorious Laura Coates and the radiant Allison Camerata. Hey, Laura. Hey, Allison. You're getting better by the day. Glorious. This is never going to get old. This chick is never going to get old. <laughs> we, we were wondering if you were going to run out of superlatives, but no, you're not. <sighs> no. Impossible. The impossible. beauty of a thesaurus. Jocular Jake. Fantastic. Thanks. Jocular Jake? That's Have a great night. I need boots. Good night. Look, while we're here, we're going to keep the conversation going here on CNN Tonight, everyone. Good evening. I'm Laura Coates. And I'm Allison Camerata. With the midterms just 21 days away, things are getting hot in Florida tonight. In the first and only debate between Marco Rubio and Val Demings, so we'll play you some portions. Plus, never before heard, until now anyway, tapes of the then-president talking to Bob Woodward. So you're about to hear his real thoughts on Vladimir Putin and Russia and his own impeachment. And we also have brand new audio from Trump's inner circle, meaning his son-in-law, Jared. Remember when we never heard his voice? Like, remember there was a whole thing about, about what about he sounded like? Yes. We're going to hear it again. Out tonight. This is how we've been involving this story. And the story that everyone's talking about tonight as well, hair straightening linked to higher rates of uterine cancer and black women may be more affected. So is the pressure to look a certain way now affecting our health? I mean, the idea of beauty standards and how it's judged. This story to me is really so relevant. We need to elevate it even more. I mean, the idea that something you're putting on your body in a treatment is causing cancer to the extent of even doubling for black women? Yeah. Unbelievable. Oh, oh, oh. and believe me, white women get their hair straightened a lot, too. I mean, it's sobering for all of us because I guess I should have known that formaldehyde is bad for you, but I didn't know that it had such a direct link to uterine cancer. I mean, that, and just you think about all the different impacts that we're talking about. We're going to cover it more tonight and we're in depth, but I just think it's such an important story that it can't get lost in the shuffle, so we're going to cover it here. I'm glad. We're also going to talk about tonight, so kick off with our midterms and the elections happening. Here with us is Brendan Buck, a former top aide to Paul Ryan and John Boehner. Also CNN political commentator Ashley Allison and chief political correspondent Dana Bash. What a panel. Glad they're all here tonight. Fantastic, guys. Mm. Great being here with you guys. So, okay, should we play something from the Val Demings, Marco Rubio? Yes. Let's talk sure. about they They dove right into it and they talk about um, abortion. So mm. let's talk about that. I'm 100% pro-life. Because I, not because I want to deny anyone their rights, but because I believe that innocent human life is worthy of the protection of our laws. That said, every bill I've ever sponsored on abortion, every bill I've ever voted for, has exceptions. Every one of them does, because that's what can pass, and that's what the majority of people support. The extremist on abortion in this campaign is Congresswoman Demings. She supports no restrictions, no limitations of any kind. Senator, how gullible do you really think Florida voters are? Number one, you have been clear that you support no exceptions, even including rape and incest. Now, as a police detective who investigated cases of rape and incest, no, Senator, I don't think it's okay for a 10-year-old girl to be raped and have to carry the seed of her rapist. No, I don't think it's okay for you to make decisions for women and girls. As a senator, I think those decisions are made between the woman her family, her doctor, and her faith. And to sit over, or to stand over there and say that I support, don't support abortions up to the time of birth is just a lie. Well, first of all, I mean, she leaned right into the whole police chops of this. But also, did you happen to catch what Rubio said? 
it's what can pass. I mean, for many voters, you think to yourself, I mean, it's not you have to have pie in the sky ideals, but is the standard only pursue that which can be accomplished? Is that really where we are? I think it's also interesting. He started by saying, I'm 100 Mm percent pro-life, but I vote for things Mm. that can just pass. And I think there's a contradiction there. It is unfortunate that people are not are playing this flip-flop game and that Val Demings came in strong, hot. She hit it on multiple levels, law enforcement, uh, as a woman, as someone who has investigated these crimes and really told a story that we know is personal and that it draws a contrast of, like, who do you really want leading in this moment? And also, who do you trust? I mean, she also fact-checked him, Dana, because he said every bill I've ever voted for has exceptions, but he just co-sponsored one with Senator, the one with Senator Graham. Mm -hmm. It doesn't make an exception for rape or incest. And she called that out. I mean, I'm not sure what he's, I guess he's trying to thread the needle and make people think that it has more exceptions than it does. She even called the voters, how gullible do you think they are based on that point? Right. And also fact check, reality check, that's not going to pass now. Um, Probably not uh, in the near future, because even if Republicans do take the Senate, it will be by a seat, a couple of seats, not the 60 votes needed to uh, to break a filibuster. Uh, and that's what would be bill, needed. But, sorry, but the yeah. Graham bill does have exceptions. But does though, right? it have it for rape and incest? I believe it does. There are some. I believe there it are does. So that I stand corrected. I, I, I'm going to check that. I, I believe it does. But I, I think what is um, what was really interesting about Marco Rubio's answer. Yes, it was uh, very practical. But it was he was in one sentence able to say, this is what I believe, like a shout out to the most conservative voters on this issue. I am 100 percent pro-life. And yet also sort of say, look, I am uh, I've been in the Senate and I know what it takes and I know what the majority of people want, which is exceptions, which is exceptions uh, for abortion. I will now do a dramatic reading from our CNN right. Okay. Uh, Senator Rubio co-sponsored a Senate bill introduced by South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham that would ban abortion in every state at 15 weeks without exceptions for rape and incest. Okay. So there you go. Um, that was I, a dramatic it, read. It, that was a dramatic read. And to be quite honest, I didn't memorize the, the ins and outs of that because this was a very deliberate political ploy by Senator Graham and I guess Senator Rubio in order to get Republicans on record with something that they support because they were getting so... And frankly, a very selfish move by Senator Graham because he wanted to score points, I think, like Rubio is doing there with the base, with with evangelicals saying, here's what I'm for. Mm -hmm. I think what Marco Rubio was trying to do there was push this back a little bit on Democrats. And and this is some of the frustration that Republicans have been having. There's a lot of questions about where's your line? Is it 15 Mm -hmm. weeks? Is it 12 weeks? Is 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 it never... A lot of Republicans go, well, what's the Democrats' line? Where, where, at what point do you want to draw the line on what an abortion okay? And I think it's a very fair question, and Democrats don't get asked it a lot. And I think he was trying to push it back on her. She did a very good job of, of not taking that bait, pushing back on him. I will say, any conversation about abortion right now is a win for Val Demings. This is not a topic that Republicans want to be talking about. I think the topics that were discussed in this debate, whether it was guns, abortion, the elections, all benefit her. Not as much conversation in this debate about the election or about the economy, which is what Marco Rubio wants to be And that's part about. of the issue, right, when Lindsey Graham um, put that into the universe on the day that President Biden was signing the Inflation Reduction Act, which many Republicans thought could be an easy win to try to undermine it in some way and say, hmm, the title doesn't sound like it's going to be a short-term win in these issues. And he came out with this very thing. But I still go back to the point in many respects of, and I, I think it's 
you know, a, a difficult thing. On the one hand, you are not taken seriously as a politician, right? Unless you know you can actually get what your platform you're saying passed. So he's talking about what he can do, but still for voters, for many of whom are younger voters, first-time voters, they do want the hope of getting things done outside of the institution in Washington. They don't want a national abortion ban, though, mm -hmm. and that is actually what the Graham bill is. And it's contradictory to what Republicans are saying. They said the Dobbs decision was to take the decision back to the states, and then you have Lindsey Graham introducing something that would do a blanket abortion ban, and that's not what the average American wants. They do want exceptions. I do hear your point about what are Democrats' rules. I think the line for them is it's a woman's choice and let it be between her and her doctor. I mean, polling will show there is a big swath of the middle of the country that believes there should be, a, they should always be able to have an abortion under certain circumstances, but there are, should be limits on at, at what point. Yes. And that's a, that's a big conversation and a big, big group of people to have. What Republicans, to your point, what Republicans have, have, in my mind, screwed up is we've always said we want to be the reasonable ones. Let states have some some reasonable restrictions. And when we just like in, in states where you're going to six weeks or zero weeks or you're having an act, it, it, it's contradictory to what we've been saying for years and years and years about why we should, people should trust us. The yeah. thing about it, I mean, one way to have solved this, right? Roe v. Wade did have those limitations, yeah, and yeah. It, right? They had viability. the trimester mm -hmm. framework, the viability framework, mm -hmm. essentially a fetus that could be viable outside the womb without mm -hmm. medical intervention, essentially, was going to be that, that threshold, which is one of the reasons maybe Republicans don't want to be talking about the issue, because there was the decision that could have had that. A absolutely. And I, I think what you said about uh, questioning Democrats on what their threshold is, whether or not they want any, any legal limits at all, is something that I ask because yeah. it is important because this is now a state's issue. So when you're talking to people uh, who are running for governor, more governor, I think, than, than in Congress, because uh, it's probably less likely now that you're going to get a national piece of legislation that for at least the short term, it's probably going to be uh, a state's issue. That, that matters. It's a very, very big question. And, and if, for the Democrats who don't on any restrictions, and they say it should exclusively be a decision between a woman and her doctor, they are a bit out of step with the way the polling shows. Um, before we go, yeah, I want to play something else that Senator Lindsey Graham said today, and this was with Herschel Walker, because he actually spelled out what he really likes about Herschel Walker, which mm. I think is interesting for everybody to hear. <laughs> Here it is. So being from South Carolina, I'm begging you to elect Herschel for the benefit of the people of my state. We're all in this together in Washington, right? If we had one more senator in Washington in the Republican column, I would be the budget chairman, not Bernie Sanders. <laughs> that is a good trade, Herschel. Trust me. Ooh. That's what he likes about Herschel Walker power. <laughs> but that, that he'd that's, get a promotion. Yeah. But that's what that's they're all the doing yeah. here. I mean, you you kind of people have been wondering what it is. Well, I mean, you shouldn't be, you shouldn't so be surprised by that. I'm surprised that he spoke the truth. No, <laughs> in that, other words, that is the frame they want. Ooh. That this seat yes. decides who controls it's the Senate. It's not just that's about not, him. Yes. That's not about the budget chair. That's yes. about control. Mitch McConnell being oh, the majority that minority. That's what they've always said, but I just like the Lindsey Graham said, and I would get a promotion, <laughs> yeah. everybody. Yeah. Well, that's what they're trying to say. This is not about Herschel Walker. Forget Herschel Walker. Yes. This is the Republican. Because they know and he's a disaster. And that's generally what Republicans are saying in the state. It, and and he, he had a debate last Friday where he actually did a good job presenting himself as generic Republican. Were there some weird moments where he's holding up a badge? Absolutely. But he did a very good job of framing this as Raphael Warnock, the Democrat, is going to vote with Joe Biden. 
I'm the Republican. I'm going to be a check on him. How That's many, as simple as it can be. How many times did your bosses and the Republican leadership uh, pre-Trump distance themselves from people with scandals like Herschel Walker has? A lot, right? Mm-hmm. Well, The exact not, same scandal. The exact same scandal. Exactly. I know Trent Franks, as you're talking and about. Tim and Tim Murphy and, and several and other folks. Okay. Yes. It's not happening now for lots of reasons. Trump changed the game in, in some ways, but it's also because they have their eyes on the majority. And if they throw Herschel Walker under the bus, then it's pretty much, forgive me, game over for the notion of taking back the majority for Republicans. This was a pivot, right? The idea of showing people why him in spite of. I mean, now it's talking about the in spite of candidacy, which is a whole new mm-hmm. threshold we're in politics right now. Yeah, everyone. All right, thank you guys very much, Dana. Thank you. Thank you. We're goodnighting you. Everybody else, you're <laughs> not going anywhere. Stick around. Maybe. Next, next we have exclusive audio tapes of Bob Woodward's interviews with President Trump, including what Trump says about the letters from Kim Jong Un. Are those letters part of all those classified documents that Trump took home? We'll find out. Nobody else has them, but I want you to treat them with respect. I, haven't I understand. Them I understand. And don't say I gave them to you, okay? Okay. Now to a CNN exclusive, legendary journalist Bob Woodward is releasing an audiobook of 20 interviews he conducted with then-President Donald Trump from 2016 to 2020. Uh, The book comes out next week, but CNN special correspondent Jamie Gangell has clips from those tapes for us tonight. Also back with us, we have Brendan Buck and Ashley Allison. Well, this is a goldmine. Yeah. Jamie, these these clips are incredible. What jumped out at you? Eight hours. Uh, And it's not just Donald Trump. You hear the people around him as well. But I'm going to start with something that really, I think, shows Donald Trump. It will not surprise you. It is unvarnished. It is profane. That means he swears a lot. Uh, And he attacks people, uh, people who don't like him, and he boasts a lot about himself. But what I thought was revealing is how much he wants to impress Bob Woodward. You just hear it over and over. And at times, he thinks he can impress him by telling him about classified information. There you go. I have built a weapon system that nobody's ever had in this country before. We have stuff that you haven't even seen or heard about. We have stuff that Putin and she have never heard about before. Getting along with Russia is a good thing, not a bad thing, all right? Especially because they have 1,332 nuclear fucking warheads. It's funny, but the relationships I have, the tougher and meaner they are, the better I get along with them. You'll explain that to me someday, okay? But maybe it's not a bad thing. The easy ones are the ones that maybe you don't like as much or don't get along with as much. So just to clarify, Woodward was never able to verify whether this system exists, but he uses it as an example. And there are many throughout the audio books of how Trump's national security advisors, their heads are exploding because Trump is just repeatedly so cavalier, dangerous, reckless, careless with classified information. And, and by the way, I mean, just, it strikes people, and certainly me, 
he's, he realizes Bob's going to write a book, right? So, I mean, he writes it. He's being taped. He wants. But he knows he's being taped, right? He's a mind-boggling. That's the mind-boggling part of this. The idea that speaking about Cavalierly and the way he does, but he also goes on to talk about there's some chest beating about how tough he is, which we've heard oftentimes before, but he digs in again here in a way that was just odd. Look, this is classic Donald Trump. I, I think if you go through the transcript from the audiobook and you put the word tough in, it's every graph wow. that comes up. Or cool. He's very cool. He's very tough. And one of the things we saw was he also shared with Woodward those Kim Jong-un, the love letters. Those are classified. They may not be the most top secret thing in the world, but he's not supposed to be sharing them with the journalists. In fact, these are part of the reason he's under investigation, these letters, right? So certainly these were one of the things that he wouldn't return. And obviously everybody knew about them right. because it was public. Eventually, after a year, the National Archives, they got those back as part of the 15 boxes that, uh, that Trump sent back in January, but they had to pry it away from, from him. Let's listen to the yeah. audio clip of him revealing these to <laughs> this classified information to Bob Woodward. Nobody else has them, but I want you to treat them with respect. I, haven't I understand. Them I understand. And don't say I gave them to you, okay? Okay. I've... But I think it's okay. Normally, I wouldn't have given, I wasn't going to give them to Bob, you know. Would you make a photo stat of them or something? No, I dictated them into a tape recorder. Really? <laughs> so the, the whole photo stat thing, you know, goes back to you guys are too young, but I remember the mimeograph in high school. I think we're talking about the same time. But listen to what Trump says. Usually I don't do this, but uh, here right, you go. Right, but here it is, and don't <laughs> tell anyone I gave them to you. I mean, again, he knows he's being taped, right? A hundred percent. During this? Yes. It's hard not to hear him. Look, Bob Woodward is a legend, right? And Donald Trump loves famous people. It's very hard to listen to that and not think he's just really trying to impress Bob yes, Woodward. Yes, I hear because that. Because he knows Bob Woodward is famous. Right. And to but your why point, is he a legend for essentially undermining right. a president? But he likes the fact that someone's going to write a book about him. And if anybody if you've had the pleasure of hearing Donald Trump privately, it's hard not to be astonished by the way that he zigs and he zags and he meanders and has parentheticals and, and just non sequiturs and he jumps all over the place. But he really just wants to impress people. Ultimately, that's what it is. He wants to impress you. He wants to charm you. And I think that's what he's doing here. He also is telling him, treat it with respect. How about you treat it with respect? They're classified <laughs> documents. Like, some consistency here. And he does want to impress uh Woodward, but he also, I feel that there's this sense that he is above it all and that I can give it to you because I'm the king of the castle and I am like the ruler of the land and the rules don't apply to me. And that is so many people call him a narcissist, but that is what like his behavior is narcissistic behavior. I'm sorry. Why do we think he has it at Mar-a-Lago? Because he wants to show his visitors. The, well, that's, the well, yes. that that's the thing, which is if he showed it to Bob Woodward, is that the only person that he showed the classified stuff to? We don't know, but it mm. seems hard to believe. Um, Laura was pointing out earlier that we went a long time without ever hearing Jared Kushner's voice. Yeah. And, and people didn't know, you know, speculated. Mm-hmm. There were, I think, comedic bits about what it was actually like. Darth Vader so, or Gilbert Godfrey. We didn't know. So, Gilbert Godfrey. So here, here it is. Should we play this portion? Yes. Can I just set yeah. it up by telling you that what's happened before this is that Donald Trump 
has put Jared on the phone with Woodward so that Jared will arrange for Woodward to have interviews with other people in the White House. Okay, got it. Hmm. Let's listen. Hello? Jared, Bob Woodward, how are you? Good, how are you? Did did you hear what he said, that I'm going to come see you? We've got a date uh, scheduled, I think, next week. And then uh, you can help me with some of these other people I want to talk to. Is that... Perfect. Well, what I'll do is I'll make a list of other people. What I heard from the president is basically that I now work for you. So I will make myself available uh, around that schedule, and I will make sure I get you a good list. I'll come up with my list, and if you come with your list of wants, uh, I will work to try to make it all happen. I want you to know I have no illusions that you work for me. I know you work for Ivanka, right? (laughs) Okay, fine. You get it. You get it. That's probably why you're Bob Woodward. So that's true. That's a funny exchange. He is Bob Woodward, though. I mean, the idea of, I guess I'm still going back to this point. I'm always a little bit tickled by just how open and accommodating people are. He hypnotizes people. With journalists who clearly are going to be writing a story that's going to be hopefully objective and not have you smiling like roses. So a, a couple of things that I've learned about Bob Woodward over the years, he doesn't give up. He will come and knock on your door at 10 o'clock at night. He also talks to so many people that when he shows up, he has the receipts even before he starts. He says, well, you said this then and this. And so people really want to talk to him to make sure they get their side of the story. I feel for Jared in that exchange because he doesn't know who his boss is anymore. You know, I I got the impression that, that President Trump is like, Today you work for the Secretary of State. Today you work for Bob Woodward. Today you work for Ivanka. And he's just long-suffering Jared having to do whatever the president says. That was my impression from listening to that. Um, this is great, Jamie. Really, really incredible to hear It's It's Bob Woodward's words. work. I'm just lucky enough to have listened to it first. I'll tell you what, if Bob Woodward's knocking on someone's door at 10 o'clock, he's not watching us. So I'm, it's already yeah, a problem. Yeah, Bob. 10 to midnight. I, I, think, I think he's watching, Gus. <laughs> okay, fine. I think he's watching. Well, there you go. I'm not saying. Say hello. You know, there you go. Look, there's also an alarming new study we're going to talk about next about the connection between hair straightening products and an increased risk of cancer. And black women may be most at risk. We'll explain this important story next. Well, there's a new study by the National Institutes of Health that is raising a lot of concern around the use of chemical hair straightening products, particularly among black women. If you didn't notice from your screen, you were looking at one. The study followed more than 33,000 women ages 35 to 74 in the United States who have used hair dyes, straighteners, relaxers, or pressing products for an average of over 10 years. About 60% of participants identified as black women. Now, over that time... 378 women were diagnosed with uterine cancer. Here with us now, senior political analyst Laura Barone-Lopez, political commentator Ashley Allison, and senior political analyst Kirsten Powers. You know, this is a, a topic that is very near and dear to my heart. I am natural. I no longer straighten my hair chemically. But there was a time that I did. And the idea that so many people I know did so at an early age, did so for a very long time, and now might have the risk of uterine cancer, and it's linked in many ways. Some do so 
to try to conform to certain beauty standards in our world, let alone the industry and beyond. And I'm resentful of the fact that this is even occurring. And we were talking about this in makeup, you and I, about when did you have your first relaxer and when did you get it? When did you decide not to do it any longer? And it's a real conversation that black women are always having. Yeah, black women hair, it's a sacred topic. Um, It's a part of our culture. And I thank my mom for protecting my hair and not letting me get a relaxer until I was a teenager because it literally changes the chemical makeup of your hair to make it irreversible to go back to its natural state. You have to cut it off. You have to cut it off and start all over again. And one of the reasons that so many Black women, and there's no judgment on how people wear your hair. I think everyone has their choice to how they want to appear. But a lot of Black women do straighten their hair because for so long... That was the quote-unquote mainstream image of beauty. We are now in this renaissance of owning who we are and being proud and really leaning into Black is beautiful like in the 60s and wearing natural hair and making sure that corporate America and that on television, we can wear our hair in natural ways because it's a part of who we are. It's a part of our culture. Yeah. And Laura, you've reported on I mean, it's the idea of the politics behind this as well, and we've all had these conversations in part because it's the pride factor, but it's also when there are consequences for not conforming. And the Crown Act is one example to try to codify a way so that there would not be so-called consequences. And again, we're talking about a link to uterine cancer. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is and this, it's on the rise among black women as well. I mean, the politics of this is really increasing. Yeah, it is. And yeah, the consequences for, you know, companies like this to, to disclose potentially what what um what the results or the correlations could be for chemical straightening. Now, personally, as a Latina, like I have faced a lot of pressure because this is my natural hair um, to straighten it throughout my life, even at a young age, whether it was from people that I was around, not my parents, thankfully, but also, um, you know, even when I started as a making the transition from print to TV, there were a lot of questions of whether or not, are you going to straighten your hair? Are you going to change your hair? And I intentionally said, no, I'm never going to do that. I'm always going to wear it this way. Thankfully, I've never actually chemically straightened it. But this morning, my partner sent me that article because I think he wasn't sure if I used chemical straighteners or not on the occasion, because maybe about four times a year, I do straighten my hair. I don't do it using chemicals. Um, And he was concerned that potentially this could impact me as well. So I think it's a lot of fear that Black women, other women of color may potentially have if they have, you know, curly hair that doesn't actually conform to beauty standards. Yeah. And by the way, I mean, white women get pressured to straighten their hair, too. I mean, because it, there is a beauty standard for black women and white women to have straight, silky hair. Or That's what we've always been doing. Well, I mean, I wouldn't know, but, um, <laughs> but uh, I do know about straightening. I mean, I get so much, I get so much Positive feedback. At the times that I have done a keratin in my hair, people are like, your Mm -hmm. hair looks so fantastic. Mm -hmm. And so I want to do it more. And I had no idea. I knew that formaldehyde couldn't be good for me. I mean, when your skin, you know, your skin's kind of on fire and you're sitting there and you're like, could this possibly be bad for me? Could this be bad? There's fumes and you're holding like a towel over your face. And And obviously, mm -hmm. if somebody had said, if I had known, if there had been disclosure, Mm -hmm. it's linked to uterine cancer, I would never have done it. But for the sake of this sort of universal beauty, I was doing it. But also there's the, even if it wasn't bad for you, why should anybody have to do this? Why should women have to spend the money, the time, have to reject what they look like? Your hair is amazing, right? I mean, it's insane that there was actually a time where you would not 
be able to have the job that you have if you didn't conform to whatever the idea was of, of basically a changed. bunch of I mean, men. Are we all saying that? Yeah. It has changed. It has changed. Yeah. You know, and for, I have a little girl. And so, and my hair, I say, is natural. I blow dry it. I flat iron it. I mean, you know. I was once in the salon to color it, but it was, oh. I was next to you. I don't really know. <laughs> um, but for my daughter, I intentionally wear my hair naturally around my daughter because I want her to understand that this is what beauty looks like and that it's also what she looks like. And her hair looks like mine when it's natural. And this is what I have to constantly think about. They always say things like representation matters. You got to see yourself on television, see yourself in books, see yourself in theater, see yourself in politics. And there's few instances where I think people are really seeing themselves and to think, and we're, we're sitting here about five minutes ago trying to figure out, name a woman on television with gray hair. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. It, we can't come up with one. No. Yeah. No. I mean. It's absurd. Yeah. No, because I was saying, like, I, I, I actually would like to go gray. Maybe I will go gray now. Oh, my gosh. You know? I'm and it's like, You're yeah. actually making me <laughs> the first one. Yeah. Because, be no, because I, be, because I resent it. Because there are men here who have gray hair, and nobody has a problem with it. Right? It means no wisdom ever, for them. No, right? Yeah. They're, 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 yeah, they're established and, and all these other things. And so for a woman, it's somehow, it, there's a reason that women haven't done it. It's because we think we're going to get punished for it. And so... We spend, like I said, I go back to the money and the time that women spend that men don't have to spend um, just maintaining ourselves so that we're acceptable to society, just to be acceptable. It's not even to be on a different, you know, level or something. I think the thing that is, I was in the gym um, and my friend said, oh my gosh, have you seen this? And I think the thing that's so disturbing is that what testing, what other things are we using on our body that they're pushing down our throats and we have no idea the impact in in the long term and what type of testing. And I do know everyone can have straighten their hair. But the way relaxers, I mean, a just for me perm, there's like a whole TikTok trend. like, where are the just for me perm girls at 20 years from now? Because it was shoved down. The marketing was pushed down on little little black girls Mm -hmm. that if you didn't have silky straight hair with a little bow, you were not pretty. Mm -hmm. And that nobody would want you. Nobody Mm -hmm. would love you. Mm -hmm. Let me tell you something. For our conversations, there should be no judgment. Wear your hair how you want to wear it. I like to wear my hair the way I like to wear my hair. I hope you all do as well. But if you're doing it because someone tells you that that is how you are supposed to look... Call me. You guys are a conversation to happen. And that's, well, that's just for me. Thank you very much. See what I did there? I saw that. Black girls around the world. I saw that. We want you to know about, and what you think about this study as well, and the pressure society puts on black and Latina women, and really women more broadly, about beauty standards. That and anything else you want to say to Allison and me, within reason. Yes, You always invite the whole conversation. I'm not opening Pandora's box. Within reason about what we're talking about today. Be Laura Coates and Allison Camerata. Use the hashtag CNN Sound Off. Meghan Markle talks about being objectified in the newest episode of her podcast, Archetypes. Markle described her experience as a so-called briefcase girl on the game show Deal or No Deal back in 2006. I mean, you have to imagine, just to paint the picture for you, that before the tapings of the show, all the girls, we would line up and there were different stations for having your lashes put on or your extensions put in or the padding in your bra... We were even given spray tan vouchers each week because there was a very cookie cutter idea of precisely what we should look like. 
it was solely about beauty and not necessarily about brains. And when I look back at that time, I will never, I'll never forget this one detail. Because moments before we'd get on stage, there was a woman who ran the show and she would be there backstage and I can still hear her. She couldn't properly pronounce my last name at the time and I knew who she was talking to because she would go, Markel, suck it in. Markel, suck it in. (sighs) (laughs) Meghan Markle sat down with socialite Paris Hilton to dissect the labels of bimbo and dumb, dumb blonde. Back with us, Laura Barone-Lopez, Ashley Allison, and Kirsten Powers. Okay, I, I admit, Laura, I'm confused by this. This confuses me. She took a job as basically a model that carries a briefcase of fake money on a game show, <laughs> mm-hmm. and she thought it was about brains, I and mean, she had no lines. So, yes, she was objectified. The role called for being objectified, let's be honest. Now, she also was a star on a different show called Suits, where mm-hmm. she had a substantial role. That was a different character she was playing. So are we supposed to be outraged that she was objectified on Deal or No Deal? I mean, look, you're right. She did take this job. She was uh, presumably knew what she was entering when she took the job. It doesn't mean that she should have to deal with someone who is telling her to suck it in. Um, I, I think that it's refreshing that Meghan Markle talks about these things, even though that was part of that job's uh, MO and that job, that job district description. And I think it, her talking about it potentially raises questions as to whether or not, do we need models next to these suitcases? Mm-hmm. I mean, do we need women to, standing next to all these suitcases? Do we really need Vanna White in all, well, I don't all know, these Vanna lanky dresses? Well, I don't know. I love Wheel I mean, of yeah. Fortune. You know. yeah. Sorry, not to <laughs> knock Wheel of Fortune. <laughs> but some of this, this is a model... Um, the other uh, term for a model, because it works. Yeah, but Allison, do, it, the, I think the bigger problem is that if you're Meghan Markle starting out, however many years ago this was, this was a while ago, these are the options for women. Mm. And men have different options. And that's what the point is. The point is she probably didn't really have a choice. She did have to do this. It doesn't make it any less humiliating that mm. she was doing it. She didn't have to take that and job. you don't... Well, I don't, I don't think that's fair. I actually think that's kind of like blaming the victim. The fact, that a woman, the fact that a woman doesn't have a lot of options in Hollywood except to have to play bimbos, you know, is not Meghan Markle's fault. It's Hollywood's fault. And so, you know, I don't know that she had a lot of options to break in. And then that's the problem is that women are, this is what we, the options that women are given. And there's all these other options for men. And we know for a long time it's starting to change because we're having more women directors and and things like that, especially because of streaming. But at the time she was breaking into the business, I don't think there were a lot of options. And I think that this just speaks badly to the people who were in control. I agree. I also think is what is the standard of beauty? Do you have to be a size four with straight hair and um, have large breasts? And all of the things that people say, like, this is what the Barbie image of what you need to look like. A spray tan for a certain complexion, but not too dark of a complexion. And it does go to, like, the game would have still existed without the women next to the suitcase. Like, the deal was in the, the case, not the women. <laughs> <laughs> I guess, but I don't know if anybody's ever gone broke putting beautiful women on TV. I mean, well, that, well that's the point, though. I mean, and part of it, and I think it's, it's kind of like I've, I've had this conversation, and I notice respect to cheerleaders. I fully support everyone doing what they want to do. But 
are you that much more interested in the game by the presence of it? Some would argue the halftime show. I mean, I'm not just discriminating against that notion of it. But I, I look at it as more of a reflection of what Hollywood requires. And the idea of saying, look, here's what we, here's what we know is going to feed the audience. Here's what we know is going to be something that is enticing to people. And she was also speaking to Paris Hilton as part of this conversation, who has been very vocal in years since um, her original sort of debut as a socialite, to talk about how it was a feigned, put-on sort of ditz. Yeah. And that that served her well to be thought of as coquettish and meek and not fully in the room. And, you know, in reality, there was a lot more going on. And I think that does speak about why it would be that's a safe space for people to go, oh, she's non-threatening. There's nothing there there. And we are, by the way, five-year anniversary from the Me Too movement. These conversations have been happening over and over again. But I mean, I, I guess I would just say about Paris Hilton, she was playing a role, and Meghan Markle was playing a role, and she made it her brand. I mean, Paris Hilton made that her brand. Now, of course, we can talk about who was forcing her to make it that brand, and did she have to make it the brand? But she rode that brand But I don't for think ten years. anybody was even forced to do anything. I just think things happen. I, you have to remember how young she was, and that you get into these situations, and I'll just speak about it getting into television, and, and maybe you could as well. You come I know that it, this is ringing you, you true come, for you. come you. into it thinking, oh, I'm here to talk about politics, and I'm here to do all these other things. And next thing you know, you've got people telling you how to wear your hair and how to wear your makeup, and why don't you wear more makeup? Uh, you know, it's, I, I've actually had, you know, someone sit me down and say, it's good to be attractive. It's good to be pretty. It doesn't make you not serious. Can we make you a little prettier? Can we play this up a little bit more? And you kind of go along with it because you don't really know what's going on. This was 15 years ago for me, what I'm talking about, right? Now, today, I don't know that you guys would put up with that, right? Like, would you? I, I don't... It's, it's a tough... I mean, yeah, as much as I, I am a feminist and I try and stand in my truth and power, like, I want to be on CNN. And yeah. so, like, you do what you need to do to be... Uh, not to say that they would not have me on the show if I didn't look a certain way or what. But I think the point, though, of this is that where does it stop? Yes, Megan was holding a briefcase on a game show and Paris was playing a reality star, one of the first to introduce. But we also know it carries over in other sectors. It carries over in television. It carries over in politics. Candidates, what do they look like? Mm-hmm. What are they wearing? They dissect the vice president's wardrobe. Every yeah. day. Every how she day. wears her hair. Oh, she takes how long in makeup? Well, if she came out without looking professional, what would you call her then? Michelle Obama looked like this. You know, name the Republican women too. Get it? Yeah, everyone. Mm -hmm. The one thing I'll say is, um, you know, whether or not she put herself into that position uh, with the deal or no deal job, that I think the fact that she's talking about this makes all women, you know, and hopefully men realize when they're treating women in this way in their places. Because I've been objectified by members of Congress, Mm -hmm. you know, multiple Mm -hmm. times. Mm -hmm. And it's very difficult to come forward and talk about that. And it happens, you know, somewhat to women on a regular basis. And I think that if they see, you know, conversations like this that we're covering, that hopefully men start to realize, and women who do it as well, because that was a woman that did it to Meghan Markle, that Mm -hmm. that's not acceptable. That shouldn't be done anymore. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, I don't want to leave this point, though, when that has happened to you, it's in the course of your profession as a journalist that congressmen are doing this. And how do you react in those moments? I think early on when I was younger, I didn't totally know how to act. Mm -hmm. Uh, When it happened in more recent years, I confronted the member Mm -hmm. uh, with others around me, you know, Mm -hmm. right outside the floor. So, and Mm -hmm. I said that they needed to stop. And did they? 
Yes, they did. They have since. But there was a time if you did that, you would lose your job, right? right. There's right. A, and that's what Meghan Markle, I think, is talking about, is if she had pushed back against that, she would have lost her job. And so it's it's like you have to just realize. And then I do think what happens, and I think, Allison, I keep looking at you because I know we've gone through this through our career, is you as you get older and you mature and society changes and the standards change and, and you start looking back to going, why didn't I say something? Well, yes. I mean, and, why and, didn't and I do to, something? To Laura's point, you know? the Me Too movement, I do think yeah. changed a lot of things, yeah. and particularly the national conversation and the way we all think about those things. And for that, I think we're all grateful. Thank yeah. you for sharing, Laura. Yeah. yeah. Thanks so much, ladies. Uh, okay, next, what James Corden did to get himself barred from a top New York City hotspot. He may have been a jerk. It's possible. Mm. I know. Sad. Late night host James Corden temporarily banned from New York City hotspot Balthazar. The restaurant's owner, Keith McNally, is alleging verbal abuse by Corden against the staff. McNally calling Corden a, quote, tiny cretin of a man and, quote, the most abusive customer in Balthazar's history. This makes me very sad because I think mm. that James Corden is so appealing and he's so funny and he's so talented. And it's a bummer that he's a jerk. But he has now apologized profusely, we're told. The ban has been revoked, thank goodness. McNally, Balthazar's owner, says tonight in a self-deprecating statement, Quote, anyone magnanimous enough to apologize to a deadbeat layabout like me does not deserve to be banned from anywhere, especially Balthazar. CNN has reached out to Corden for comment. We haven't heard back yet. But this Ooh. is, this is, um, I, there's, a, there's a lesson here. Don't ever be rude to the wait staff. Don't ever be rude to the waiters. I mean, what? It, or to anyone. Oh, okay. That, that, that's a more I mean, universal. That's, that's, a, that's, <laughs> that's the lesson. That's, that's the lesson. Um, but particularly, you just are a jerk. If you're rude to the waiters and waitresses, it's just like you have a huge jerk sign. And by the way, the things mm. he was doing in June, Corden demanded that a round of drinks come this second and that his previous drinks be comped because he had found a hair in his food. That mm. is gross. Um, and but the food, not the drinks. Yeah. And also, did he really? I mean, I, I don't know. Uh, anyway, he was extremely nasty to the manager. He also, on another occasion that month, came into the restaurant with his wife for brunch and said to the server that there was a tiny bit of egg yolk in her egg white omelet. That's jerky. I got to tell you, I mean, I, as somebody who is awfully new to being sometimes recognizable to people, I have spent a lot of my time being a bit invisible. And I can tell you, I love it because I know who people really are and how you treated people that I've watched. And I'm kind of like, hmm, I see you. <laughs> and I think when it comes to wait, I've been a waitress. Yeah, I've had too. all sorts of odd jobs. Oh. And I can tell you about a per- if the person treats people because they mm-hmm. have this perceived sense of superiority, yep. I don't care what kind of smoozing you can do, you'll always be seen. So maybe that's what happened here. I've also never been to Balthazar, though. Oh, I'll take you there. It's great. Oh. Fantastic. Well, if there's a hair in my food, do I get to get a free meal? Or are you buying? Never mind. She's buying. That's fine. I'll go. Um, okay, we want to know what you think about James Corden's. Um, I mean, is he a jerk or is he? did he just have a bad month? Okay, let us know about that. I know how you feel. Or anything. No, <laughs> I mean, this. I really, I'm glad he apologized. That's the right thing to do. Tweet us at Allison Camerata and the Laura Coates. Mm-hmm. We'll be right back. Three weeks from tonight, they'll be counting votes across the country, and those votes will determine not only control of Congress, but of crucial local and state offices that could, of course, shape the 2020 race 
both sides are out right now trying to fire up their bases. And, of course, the president, well, he's taking a different tactic. He's trying to appeal to younger voters today, specifically on abortion rights. But, you know, there's new polls that find Democrats may actually be in trouble with another group. Gen X may be leaning away from Democrats. And the question really tonight is, why? Joining us now, CNN political commentator Paul Bagala, CPAC general counsel David Safavian, and CNN political analyst Laura Barone-Lopez. You know, first of all, are we going to say what generation we're in? Oh, yeah, definitely. Oh, I'm a proud Gen Xer. I'm a proud Gen Xer. But we should put it up what, it. to define it. Because I think at this table we might have a baby boomer, two Gen Xers, a millennial, and unknown. Gen Xer. Gen X. Three Gen Xers. Wow. I didn't know if you were Gen Z or Gen X. Well, for the record, um, though, thank I mean, you. Thank you for the I'm compliment. born in 1980s in, in July, so I'm like Gen X adjacent. Yeah, you, I think you count. Little, Wait, you were born what? in 1980? 1980. But yeah, I mean, you're, but you're like right July. Are you yeah. a husband? I'm five months away from yeah. when it would be. Okay. Yeah, I, yeah. We round up. Yeah, you round right. <laughs> Oh, we round up? We Never round mind. Up. I'm Gen X. <laughs> no, no offense. <laughs> So, so, Paul, what's going on with Gen Xers? Is this new that they're leaning towards? I mean, basically, they are uh, their choice for Congress is significantly more Republican than any of those other age demos. So right. It's the weakest Gen age X. cohort for Democrats. What happens is for a lot of people, not everybody, you identify with the party whose president you came of age under. So I'm at the end of the baby boom, but I don't remember Woodstock or really even Vietnam or any of that. So I don't culturally identify with baby boomers. So first election I voted in was Reagan against Carter. I was at the University of Texas. Reagan carried my campus overwhelmingly, right? I was in the minority. I voted for Carter. But so those folks I grew up with who are Gen, Gen X, they're still, they identify with Reagan. They're still Republican. Young people today, they came of age, positive identification with Barack Obama, and then the most amazing negative identification I've ever seen with Donald Trump. This happened also with Nixon, the baby boomers, right? They hated Nixon, loved JFK. They became Democrats, stayed their whole life. So some of it is that, is that you identify either positively or negatively, or in, in the case of Obama and Trump, both, which is why young people are the most wonderfully solid group of age demographics for the Democrats. Well, and yet President Biden is trying to make sure that he is trying to entice younger voters by talking about the guarantees he as president and the Democrats, if they retain the House majority and the Senate majority, will do to codify reproductive rights. I wonder if it's persuasive, politically speaking. Is that the, the coveted demographic? And is his, ta- his, his approach persuasive? Well, after President Obama showed that young voters actually vote, that they turn out and vote, Democrats have been trying to get young voters to continually turn out in big numbers. I mean, in 2018, we saw them break records for their age groups, millennials. And then also in 2020, again, millennials, Gen Zers, with Gen Xers actually turned out in greater numbers than anyone over the age of, I think, 55 to 60. They, so young voters vote. The question a lot of times for millennials and Gen Zers is whether or not they're motivated to vote for Democrats. So that's why you've seen President Biden, his numbers when they were so bad, I mean, they're not that great now, but when they really dipped down last year, his approval rating, a lot of that also had to do with the fact that Democrats weren't enthusiastic about President Biden. They and a lot and young voters where his numbers had been high with them 
in 2020, exiting 2020, they went down. And it's because a lot of them were not seeing what they thought he was going to do accomplish. So with student debt, with abortion, uh, with Roe being overturned, I think we've seen those numbers start to tick back up. And young voters uh, have also been registering in greater numbers this cycle than they did in um, 2018. David, you are general counsel for CPAC. I mean, obviously, you know quite well the conservative base and what it takes to entice and the thoughts around it. Um, what is the strategy in play? Obviously, it's a coveted demographic and younger voters for the reasons that Laura talked about. What is the approach in that category? Is that why you're seeing more, I mean, of a push towards younger voters and Gen X is more conservative? Where is it? Well, look, the Gen Xers are... are I think Paul's got a fair point that everybody imprints on the first presidential race they participate in, right? But at the same time, Gen Xers are kind of uniquely positioned because they're approaching retirement age. At least I am. You guys are far younger than I am. But approaching retirement age, our our 401ks are taking a nosedive. Home values are dropping, right? So they're starting to feel great unease about what's coming up. We hit $30 trillion in debt. That all impacts Social Security. All of these things come and are undermining kind of confidence in, in the Gen X. But are you saying, David, that in other words, they haven't always been a conservative cohort? That they're no, getting more so. conservative? I think they are getting more conservative as we see um, all of these things add together. You know, and it, I, I, in a weird way, I kind of feel bad for the White House because they can't, they, they can't get a break. If they try to appeal to uh, the Gen Xers or if they try to appeal to the young people with student loans, right, the student loan buyout, um, vote buy off, then they're going to upset the Gen Xers, all of whom have paid their student loans off by now. If they don't appeal to the young people, if they don't do the student loans, the activists go crazy. So they're, they, they can't win either way. The, the divides, though, are much more pronounced. They're there in, among generations. They are. But they're much more pronounced on race, gender, education, region. There are terrible divides all across the country. The, the good news is the worst of them is not age. It, it re, there is... A, terrible divide uh, on particularly race and on education, uh, uh, particularly among white people. If you're a white person went to college, golly, when I was a kid, if your name was on your, your collar, I mean, on your uh, shirt, you're a Democrat. If, you're, if your initials were engraved on your lapel, you're a Republican. Now it's switched. All the college-educated white people are in my party, all the, the high school-educated white people in his okay. party. So those divides actually trouble me a lot more than the generational divides. I wonder if a part of it is, and we're talking about generations, there's obviously the nostalgia component where people have a very skewed perception of what America is and what it looks like. And they kind of have the, do I recognize the country still? Is it what I anticipated if I was imprinted in the way you're talking about? Is part of this conversation um, a skewed rose-colored glasses nostalgia about, for older voters, what you hope the country will be, hence the phrase, make America great again, mm-hmm. followed by those who say, make America what it ought to be in future generations. I think that definitely plays a role because when you look at all the studies and all the polls of millennials and Gen Zers, you go down the issues and on every issue, even though millennials and Gen Zers are more likely to say that they're not affiliated with a certain party or they're more likely to affiliate as an independent, on all the issues, they skew more towards Democrats. On climate change, on LGBTQ rights, on abortion, on racial justice, you go down the list and they tend to vote much more Democratic. And I think that's because on a lot of these issues, you know, you pick out climate change. It's something that they feel absolutely strongly about in a way that I think some of the older generations don't. How about crime? So crime is one of those issues that that cuts across um, uh, generational lines, right? 
if you don't feel safe, you're going to vote for change. And I think that's the real problem that we have across the board is we can, we can talk about the drivers of crime, but there's no disputing that crime has spiked in, in major cities and in, in rural areas. And that's driving people to feel less safe. And if you feel less safe, you're going to go to the polls and make this a change election. That's what we're seeing up and down. And what I would say, you know, is that we see at CPAC, right? Now, these are the activist activists. We're seeing a resurgence in young people. I've never seen so many young people come to a CPAC. Is that right? Um, you know, and they're coming, they're motivated by the life issue. There is a substantial and growing pro-life uh, uh cohort within the within Gen Z that were raised um, on Pope John Paul. They were raised on pro-life messages from the church, and they are coming out in force. Uh, are they as dominant as I think? Uh, they're not the most majority. Of they Gen are not Zers. the majority, right, yeah. but they are a lot more vocal than I expected, mm-hmm. and, and we're seeing that across the board. Um, all right, well, while uh, we're on this political discussion, I just want to also clarify something that I said earlier. I had the wrong information. In fact... That uh, bill that was proposed by Senator Lindsey Graham about an abortion ban that Senator Marco Rubio, I think, co-sponsored, it does allow for exceptions for rape and incest and the life of the mother. I apologize for that confusion. Okay, stick around. Good. Thank you. Yeah, stick around, everybody. We have a lot more to talk about. Tell us what you think. Tweet us at Allison Camerata and the Laura Coates, and we'll read some of your thoughts later this hour. So with so many polls and so many debates, it's easy to get lost in the details about what's going on ahead of the midterm. So let's get a view from people in the air, the people who are on the air. Joining me now are fellow radio hosts Bill Press and Mark Davis are here to tell us what voters are telling them. And I'm really excited to hear both of your perspectives because, you know, we talk about what the nation's thinking and you hear about the polls and then it's not until you really have the conversations on air when you get people to really weigh in and tell you what they're thinking about. So, gentlemen, tell me, I'll start with you, Bill, here. You know, when people are fired up about a topic, when when they're hearing about a particular debate or aspect of our politics, what are the things that they are really fired up about and calling you about? Well, first of all, I find that people are really excited about these midterms, which I think is great. I mean, look at the turnout so far, right? Over 2.6 million people have, have voted already. Georgia, they had a record turnout on the first day that they've ever had for first day in the midterms, which I think is great. I mean, I'm, I'm old-fashioned. I think the more people that vote, the better for everybody. Uh, so I think that's very exciting. The people that I talk to, uh, boy, surprise, surprise, are mainly on the left of the political equation. Uh, what I find people particularly uh, excited about are a couple of issues, and I would call them maybe the sleeper issues in, this, uh, in these midterms. One is abortion, uh, the Roe v. Wade decision. There are more women who, in, in, than men. There are more women who vote than men. Uh, I think a lot of women are not telling the pollsters, but they don't like being treated as second-class citizens. They're gonna, they don't want cops or the government in their bedroom or their doctor's office. They're going to vote on that issue. Mm-hmm. And the other issue is which I don't think we're talking enough about, is democracy. You know, there are two polls out this week that showed 71% of Americans believe that democracy itself is on the line in these midterms. Uh, and I think that's going to have an impact where people are worried about 
the basic principle of democracy, which is the people decide and the candidates accept the decision mm. and move on. Mark, you're nodding along. What are people calling you about? Well, I, I've got about an 80-20 conservative liberal split. And on the, on the 20% of callers from the left that I get, I, I can completely corroborate everything Bill just said. Interesting thing about that democracy in peril question. That's a towering number. I think if you gather 100 people who are concerned about democracy, <laughs> half of them are concerned because Trump and his supporters exist. And the other half are concerned because they think there's going to be cheating. So it, it can be a kind of a different concerns for the reasons uh, that, that people are worried about democracy. Abortion rights, absolutely. The left on fire about it. The conservative concerns that I hear, though, and this is what makes me feel really good about three weeks from tonight, are inflation, the economy, crime, things that everybody is concerned about, whereas abortion and climate and uh, they, that tends to be more of, a, of an exclusively liberal concern. The Republican talking points these days seem to be about things that have broader appeal. When you think about these issues, and I, I'm not, go ahead, I want to hear your, your take on this, Bill, but I also wonder, you know, for the, the phrase that all politics being local, you know, we talk about, I, I, I often ask the question to people, look, if you were early voting, if you were allowed to vote across this nation in any state you wanted, which of course we know is not the case, but the, the states they're most interested in, you find there's a bit of a trend because people are looking at these more local races, but they're seeing parallels more broadly, more nationally. They're seeing either blueprints for what's happening and they want that to be the case in their own state or they are repulsed by what they are seeing and they're hoping it won't exist there. But when you think about the idea of local politics and, and the national stage, are your callers and those in radio thinking about a disconnect between really how the national media is getting it? Boy, that's such a complicated question, Laura. First, I just want to point out, I, I think to a certain extent, Republicans are raising, they want to talk about crime, They want to, even though there's no crime wave. They want to talk about inflation, even though inflation has kind of leveled off. They want to talk the, about the economy, even though the economy is doing pretty well, thank you, in the middle of a war and getting out of COVID. They don't want to talk about abortion. They keep trying to change the subject. That's why you see uh, people like Blake Masters, like Herschel Walker, backing off of this issue because they know it's such an important issue. But to your question, look, I think uh, I agree with Tip O'Neill. I think politics, most politics is local. Mm -hmm. And in these midterms where there's no president on the ballot, I think most people will look at their member of Congress or their senator and see what's that person going to do, man or woman going to do for them and their state. Uh, having said that, mainly, having said that, I still think Donald Trump in these midterms, even though he's not on the ballot, is a huge factor because of the people he's endorsed the rallies that he's given, and to a certain extent, it is still a referendum on Donald Trump. Mark, I'll give you the last word here. What do you think about that? I, I think Bill has some really strong points there. And I, and I think that, well, first of all, as a conservative, I'll talk about abortion all day and my gratitude for having Roe v. Wade return the matter properly to the states. And I think a lot of Republicans are going to show up with gratitude for that. Uh, and I'll throw in with Bill and Tip at the same time about <laughs> politics being local, which is interesting because these big national issues of inflation and crime and education, these are very national, but they're also very local. The inflation and crime crisis and they are both crises, are not only happening nationally, but they're happening right outside everybody else's home. 
I feel good about our chances. Well, Bill Press, Mark Davis, Tip O'Neill, thank you to all of you for joining the show today. It was all really three. wonderful to hear all, all three of you tonight. Right. <laughs> thank you all. Thanks, Laura. Nice Thanks, to see Laura. you. Come back. Right. We like hearing, having all of your perspectives here. Allison, you know, it's so important to think about. I mean, you know, it's one thing to talk about these issues, and we hear polls and the polar coaster, yeah. right? Then you get down to the, well, what are people really talking about? Their kitchen tables, oh, yeah. their water coolers, in their cars. What are they really thinking about? And I think radio gives you that moment. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know it so well because you're on radio every day, and those guys have their finger on the pulse yeah. of what people are really thinking. And I also want to give a shout-out to Mark Davis there for being so chivalrous on Twitter when mm. one person really <laughs> on earth tried to criticize us. He was, like, he was like, put up your dukes. And he... Um, Defended us, which was very chivalrous. That well, that's wonderful. because people had this impression, Allison, that you can only talk to people who they think are like-minded to who they perceive you to be. Yeah, but I mean, everybody reality, just projects right. onto you. Who knows? I mean, how do they know they what no we're idea. thinking? But you know what? Yeah. Can we just have a conversation with people? I mean, that's part of it. I just have a, I'm glad everyone's here to talk about these issues. It's important. All right. We have more of that ahead. So coming up, George Floyd's family wants Kanye West to stop talking mm. about him. We'll tell you what they're doing legally. Just hours from now, former President Donald Trump is scheduled to sit for a deposition. This is in E. Jean Carroll's defamation lawsuit. She's the former magazine columnist who accuses Donald Trump of raping her in a department store in the mid-1990s. Trump has denied those allegations. Let's bring back Paul Begala, David Safavian, and Laura Barone-Lopez. They're all back with us. So, Laura, this is very interesting because um, I interviewed E. Jean about this. She remembers it vividly. Mm-hmm. Um, Donald Trump has denied it. And he went, he did more than denying the rape. He also disparaged her in the process. He also said he had never, he had no idea who she was. She has mm-hmm. pictures of mm-hmm. herself with him. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's interesting that a judge is forcing him to sit for this deposition because he had tried to get out of it by saying, I said these comments when I was president, so he had yeah. some sort of cover. But I guess he doesn't. Well, right. And he's also, you know, clearly been trying to delay the potential of this deposition. What's interesting here, though, and Eugene Carroll could very well amend her statement in this defamation case, is that Trump repeated his denial recently on Truth Social. So he just repeated it again uh, while he's not president, saying, I did not could do this, you know, attacking her again. And so the fact that he did that publicly while he does not have this so-called protection, which he says that he had when he was president, to say this. Now, you know, the legal understanding, as far as I know it, is that she could very well amend her statement and now include this in it, and it could potentially weaken his case. What do you think? Yeah, and, you know, think, think about it. People often hear this case and say, wait a second, if somebody denies a crime, that they have committed a crime, that's defamation automatically. No, her, her statement is actually more nuanced, right? It's mm-hmm. the idea of suggesting it didn't just deny it. It's that you tried to disparage me and reputation in the process. You talked about me in, in terms and terminology that was supposed to lower my reputation in the community, the standard people have for defamation cases. What's interesting about this is, remember, defamation and obviously the idea of depositions is about getting information. They want to hear from him, not just get documents from him. And you can imagine the Pandora's box. If you're his attorney is thinking, wait, you actually want him to talk? And how can I control this in depositions? On the other hand, 
It might be, as you're talking about, the way to get the renewed information of this. It's a way to now open the Pandora's box into what else he might say in other instances. He's got so many investigations. I wonder if he'll be tight-lipped. Right, he could plead. It'll be a first. It'll be a maybe he could, a plead, he could end up pleading the fifth again, correct? Well, but it's a civil case in some respects. You don't have that same luxury where you can't okay. use it against you in a court of law. You have mm. that bad inference. But still, the point is, you know, he I could think choose he wants to, to talk. He could choose not to answer I think the question, right? About this, since he's talking on Truth Social and he's he's been talking about this, I think he wants to talk right. about he, it. He did. He did take the fifth in the New York State civil lawsuit the attorney general filed against him. 440 times. That's the guy who said only mafia guys take the fifth. He took 440 times. Several years before that, 2000 and wait, I made a note, seven, 2007, he sued the journalist Tim O'Brien. O'Brien wrote a book in which he claimed Trump was not worth anything like the amount of money he claims. Well, that's the core of Donald Trump, right? So he sues O'Brien. O'Brien deposes him. And, and as O'Brien has written, he claims Trump admitted under oath to 30 different specific lies. Because he's under oath. you got to say, well, yeah, I was lying about that, lying about that. So O'Brien has written that up. O'Brien, by the way, won the lawsuit. Trump lost. So he's got a terrible history in depositions. And, and uh, seriously, as a, as a lawyer, not a, not a real one like Laura, but went to the greatest law school in America, the University of Texas, he needs to be really, really careful and really tight-lipped. It's just not his nature. He's never careful and he's never tight-lipped. And yet, if he doesn't, then what? I mean, that, that's part of the emboldening of the notion of Teflon Don, right? Some, you mentioned 2007. I'm not saying he's without consequence, but to date, yeah, what does happen? A lot of that's a good point, though. What, what, what will happen if he talks about this and the deposition? Well, let, 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 let's take a step back here because there's a real fundamental problem that I think no one's touched on. That is, as we talked about in an earlier block, this campaign is going to be all about two things if, if you're the Democrats. They want to make it about abortion. They want to make it about Trump. And lo and behold, a judge two weeks or three weeks right before the election plops in a, uh, a development where they're going to force the president to testify. So this has been headlines. going on for a couple of it years. It has, and that's exactly my point, Allison. That's exactly my point. It's been going on a couple of years. Three weeks more to get us past the election would have, wouldn't have hurt He's not on the whatsoever. ballot, and he's not President Trump. He's Donald. He's ex-president, he's, rejected he by the American people, out of office. He is not every, above the law. Every, everything he needs that to be out. held accountable for his conduct. For you I am not saying that anybody gets a pass. Yes, yeah, everybody gets a day in he court. Could've, he could have agreed to the deposition six months ago. This is a ago. timing issue, especially right. when... It's Trump's fault. Every, because every single campaign wants to try to tie Republican X to Donald Trump. And to, but that's very and easy. And they and could to, disavow him. Oh, you know better than that. Right. So right. let him no, let no, him pay no, the political no, no. price. But I think, David, they don't I think David's do that, point then. is that the, that perception is king. And if there's already ongoing talking points about how it appears for those who are susceptible to that logic, that this is just another way to try to get at him and try to hold him accountable. And the timing is bad. Is that your point? Well, there's there's been I, I mean, look, as I said, everybody deserves a day of court. I am not taking that away from Gene Carroll. What I am saying, though, is that this all of a sudden out of the blue deposition comes in at a point in time that there is hope. I doubt that it will be effective, but there is hope that tying every Republican candidate to Donald Trump is going to hurt every Republican candidate. And so it's more than a coincidence that this is popular. But it's not really out of the blue is the point, oh. though, David, right? Well, did anybody any expect that? that the we, I mean, let's be candid. Politically? We just got the news story tonight and decided to talk about it. This was a surprise in terms of its timing. She filed the lawsuit some time ago. Yeah, you interviewed her months and maybe oh, years, years ago. Yeah. Years but ago. timing of the deposition is, um, is a fickle. Five minutes after, okay, we're, we're 20 days from the midterm. Okay. Oh, right. so he's immune because he's not even on a ballot. Give me a break. But five minutes after the midterm, he's going to announce for president. 
Why? Because he doesn't want to be held accountable in a court of law. So, so then, oh, we can't touch him then. Baloney. Yeah. He needs to be held accountable. And if he's innocent, which he may be, testify, open up, uh, uh, show, show your, your evidence and testify honestly. Right, but you don't see it that way. Uh, I see that, uh, you know, that I think where Paul's trying to go is justice delayed is justice, justice denied. And I understand that argument. But I also understand that 22 days from now doesn't change the justice denied aspect of things. What it does do is it keeps politics or keeps this from politics or uh, poisoning the election. Okay, so let's quickly talk about Kanye West because apparently we can't go a night without doing this. Um, (laughs) Kanye, so George Floyd's daughter, we all remember her on the shoulder of her uncles and Mm -hmm. saying, you know, in her grief, talking about her father. To change the world. So, yeah, my father's going to change the world, Mm -hmm. which was prescient. Um, So the, the mother of that child is now suing Kanye West because Kanye West went on a podcast and said that George Floyd died of an opi- uh, opioid overdose. But we all watched with our own eyes about how he was killed. Right. Mm. And so they want him to stop talking and they're going to file a cease and desist um, mm-hmm. about this. What do you think, Laura? I mean, it is curious in one respect because we did see those multiple minutes of seeing. We have officers who are convicted right. and serving time for having done so and having it unequivocally proven to the jurors in Minnesota. Yeah. And the medical examiner confirmed how he died. It was an overdose. It was the knee to the neck mm-hmm. in a prone position by an officer who said they were just uh, officer of the peace but did not. But the other option is you do have normally in defamation cases – it's a, it is an action of the living. Um, it's an action of those who are presently alive who were able to say, listen, your statements are defamatory. I'll be curious to see how this is written in such a way to make it um, viable in this instance. But it is really atrocious to think about the way in which there is a constant you know, chatter by this particular artist, Kanye West, diving into areas where the facts are otherwise. Anti-Semitism mm-hmm. on the one hand, mm-hmm. now the death of George Floyd. Yeah, where he has no expertise or hasn't, even though he clearly has at his disposal, the ability to educate himself has not. Um, yes, he said that it was a fentanyl overdose. The medical examiner explicitly ruled this a homicide mm-hmm. and said that it was, you know, well, fentanyl may have played somewhat of a contributing role. It was not the determining factor in George Floyd's death. It was a homicide and it was done because of, you know, the knee to the neck and the restriction, the restrictions there of oxygen there. So, um, yeah, I I mean, it's um, it's pretty frustrating, especially as reporters, when we have to constantly respond to celebrities or elected officials as well who spew lies on a consistent basis and spew hate and bigotry. And And, I mean, the family doesn't need to be re-victimized. You know, well, that's once again, his daughter. Shame on anybody who brings even a microgram of more pain to that family. But I have to say, double shame on the right wingers who are using Kanye and using these statements to to advance themselves or promote some kind of political agenda. And by the way, ignoring the anti-Semitism, not calling out anti-Semitism. Uh, to me, they're even worse. You know, Kanye has talked about his struggles with mental illness, uh, and I, I so I have a very wide strike zone on that. But mental illness doesn't make you anti-Semitic. And it doesn't make you mean and cruel to a family that suffered a, a murder. 
Um, but I, I guess I hold the politicians more accountable because I'm a politician, right? I think the people who are using him to advance a right-wing agenda are even more shameful, perhaps, than Mr. Yee Ye is now, than, than Yee yeah. yeah. Ye himself. Yay. <laughs> I'd say boo, not yay, but yeah. Right now. Look, there's um, a third level of shame here, too. Okay. These right. two, there, there are actually two lawsuits that are being threatened, right? One representing uh, George Floyd's daughter and one representing his brother. We got two lawyers that are cruising in a Bentley in two different Bentleys trying to chase an ambulance here. But come on, don't you think that? Do you think that he shouldn't he cease and desist saying wrong and hurtful things about George Floyd? I don't know when we got into the point of time when make you know saying something wrong or stupid becomes a lawsuit. I don't get it. You know we see this all the time, uh, whether it's on social media, everybody. You know, jumping on on folks. I'm not defending Kanye West's comments here. What I am saying is that there is a hair trigger among folks to file a suit over the slightest thing. And you can't tell me that an eight-year-old daughter was listening to an obscure podcast and heard this. Well, but Kanye let, me, let me just say definitively, though. I and I mean, I as a lawyer, I do not think it's fair to denigrate the lawyers for the family of George Floyd or, or his, his daughter as ambulance chasers. I think they have done a great deal to promote the fact that we should have accountability when an officer is involved in the death of a human being. I also think, though, back to the point that you've raised earlier, that people have this perception time and again that, um, that there is somehow an incentive to bring cases against police departments, individual police officers, because it's somehow so lucrative that it will Mm -hmm. outweigh the the public service and public need. I think that it is a public service to be able to hold officers to account. And I don't think that it makes them ambulance chasers. And the data shows otherwise that it's lucrative, which is that a lot of these cases end up going nowhere when it's filed against officers, a lot of the civil cases, and that uh, officers often don't actually have to pay. Uh, The the payments are covered by their... Yeah, almost never pay. But Kanye can probably... We have to leave it there. But Kanye can probably afford it. I'm just guessing. We need shame. I think it's a good point about using the legal system when we have free speech rights. But we we used to have a social system that shamed people and his right wing friends are not shaming him. All right, everybody stay with us if you would. Up next, you need to hear this. A new study on the importance of a good night's sleep and napping. I know a lot about this. (laughs) Evidence shows we're not getting enough sleep. So what's the solution? We're going to talk about it. We'll get back. All right, my mom is about to be totally validated because she's right all these years, as she often is. Getting a good night's sleep is so important to our health, especially as some people age. A new study shows that people age 50 and older. I'm just kidding. That was not directed to in particular. But a new study will age Random 50 and over. Age. Not <laughs> us. sleep five hours or less a night. Get this. They face a 30% higher risk of developing chronic diseases as they do get older. Compared to people in the same age group who sleep at least seven hours a night, back here, this is Paul Bagala, David Safavian, and Laura Perone Lopez. First of all, Allison, can I start with you? Because yeah. you were, I mean, I'm a world class sleeper. <laughs> I'm a world class sleeper. It's my superpower. Everybody be jealous of me. I can sleep on a bed of nails, I've fallen asleep standing up. I can sleep. However, she's asleep right now. I'm asleep <laughs> right now. But I am having an issue, Laura, and I do need people's help. 
When are we supposed to sleep on this shift? I'm a little confused. <laughs> this shift is throwing off a little bit of my superpower because, I don't know if you guys know this, but we're on until midnight. I don't know if anybody told you that oh, when wow. you agreed to do this. And then, Don Lemon somewhere is laughing going, yeah, I told he's, you. he's like, <laughs> um, but so I can fall asleep when, when I get home. But then that's not enough sleep no. for when I wake up in the morning. So when am I supposed to nap? I'm just a little bit confused about, have you cracked the code on this? Oh, no, I, I actually wake up in the morning thinking, at what point can I nap again? Yeah. <laughs> but, I, but I need to function on that. But also I know that it means it's restorative, right? And mm-hmm. there must be times that you walk the same way where you're like, I've got to try to buckle down. But then there's about napping too long that can be. Yeah. How much sleep do you right. get, Paul Biala? Uh, I, I probably sleep six, seven hours a night. But I try so many days if I can, 20-minute nap. Early afternoon, the study that you're mm-hmm. reporting on, early afternoon yeah. before 3 p.m., before 3 p.m. Yeah. 20 minutes. Okay, I'm doing it. And I'm, I'm doing it tomorrow. telling you, it works. It is great. It, it's restorative. You're a believer, Laura? I'm a believer in naps, especially as I've gotten older, even though I know I'm the youngest at the table. <laughs> How dare you? How do you Sorry. know that? How dare you? Mm-hmm. I'm pretty positive, but I'm the only millennial. We talk okay, about moving this on, today. David. No, wait, 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 wait. But yes, I nap. Now, not every day, but especially on days when I get like six hours or less, around 2 p.m., yeah. 1.30 p.m., it really starts hitting me. And I have to do at least 30 minutes of napping. Well, and if I, if, I, if I nap for an hour or more, then that messes then me up. Oh, you get too groggy. Then I'm yeah. Right. Then I, yeah. yeah. It takes right. a long time to recover. Golf channel. I don't know who watches golf. It's the most boring thing I've ever seen in my <laughs> life. David's like, I watch it. white guy wandering around for no reason. Yeah, God, how much boring. sleep you get? Uh, the older I get, the less sleep I get. I sleep five hours a night now. Uh, um, and I didn't think I was in the nap nap category. Uh, and the older I get, the more pro-nap I am. But all of the millennials that work for me, they better be there working 18 hours. <laughs> oh. And awesome. now that I've heard Begala is taking these 20-minute naps, I'm going to yeah, go, go back and, yep. and watch that Seinfeld where George is sleeping under his desk. Yeah. Oh, yes. I'm building out the desk as soon as I'm back to see that. All right, good. You've all given us a lot of good advice here. Thank you very much. It's time for all of you to sound off. We'll read your tweets next. All right, time for you all to sound off. Let's see what the viewers are saying tonight. This first one is about James Corden. He made a mistake. I'm not condoning his behavior. However, we are all flawed. Speak for yourself. (laughs) The next one comes in. She's not flawed, apparently. There we go, everyone. The next one comes in and says, as a professional, my curly, nappy hair is part of the package. Accept me as I am. Old rule taught by my grandma, and I won't compromise who I am for any amount of Ooh, money. It came from Evita. All right, uh, next. Um, this is Laura, I think, to Laura Brown. We are, oh, my thing. Oh, it's to me. Oh, it's to you? There we go. Oh, there, okay. Laura, we are considered exennials. I like that. Oh, you'll take Xennials. it. I'll take it. That's, yeah, you like I'll that better than, than Gen X. You're an Xennial. No, no shade you're, to Gen X, but in my mind, it's like, I'm Gen X adjacent. Yeah, yeah. You're Xennial. melding, too. I like that. Yeah. All right, sure. You know where to find us, everyone. At the Laura Coates and Allison Cameron, everyone's like, no, Laura, you are Gen X. It's fine. And I'm accepting it. Thank you for watching, everyone. We appreciate it. Our coverage continues. See you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.